Section 7 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 7 The Open Door, Part 2 I called her and saw him turn to her with the complete dependence of a child, and then I went away and left them, as perplexed a man as any in Scotland, I must say. However, I had this consolation, that my mind was greatly eased about Roland. He might be under a hallucination, but his head was clear enough, and I did not think him so ill as everybody else did. The girls were astonished even at the ease with which I took it. How do you think he is? they said in a breath, coming round me, laying hold of me. Not half so ill as I expected, I said. Not very bad at all. Oh, Papa, you are a darling, cried Agatha, kissing me and crying upon my shoulder, while little Jeanie, who was as pale as Roland, clasped both her arms round mine and could not speak at all. I knew nothing about it, not half so much as Simpson, but they believed in me. They had a feeling that all would go right now. God is very good to you when your children look to you like that. It makes one humble, not proud. I was not worthy of it. And then I recollected that I had to act the part of a father to Roland's ghost, which made me almost laugh, though I might just as well have cried. It was the strangest mission that ever was entrusted to mortal man. It was then I remembered suddenly the looks of the men when they turned to take the brougham to the stables in the dark that morning. They had not liked it, and the horses had not liked it. I remembered that even in my anxiety about Roland, I had heard them tearing along the avenue back to the stables, and had made a memorandum mentally that I must speak of it. It seemed to me that the best thing I could do was go to the stables now and make a few inquiries. The coachman was the head of this little colony, and it was to his house I went to pursue my investigations. He was a native of the district, and had taken care of the place in the absence of the family for years. It was impossible but that he must know everything that was going on, and all the traditions of the place. The men I could see eyed me anxiously when I thus appeared at such an hour among them, and followed me with their eyes to Jarvis's house, where he lived alone with his old wife, their children being all married and out in the world. Mrs. Jarvis met me with anxious questions. How was the poor young gentleman? But the others knew— I could see by their faces that not even this was the foremost thing in my mind. After a while I elicited without much difficulty the whole story. In the opinion of the Jarvises, and of everybody about, the certainty that the place was haunted 
was beyond all doubt. As Sandy and his wife warmed to the tale, one tripping up another in their eagerness to tell everything, it gradually developed as distinct a superstition as I ever heard, and not without poetry and pathos. How long it was since the voice had been heard first, nobody could tell with certainty. Jarvis's opinion was that his father, who had been coachman at Brentwood before him, had never heard anything about it, and that the whole thing had arisen within the last ten years, since the complete dismantling of the old house, which was a wonderfully modern date for a tale so well authenticated. According to these witnesses, and to several whom I questioned afterwards, and who were all in perfect agreement, it was only in the months of November and December that the visitation occurred. During these months, the darkest of the year, scarcely a night passed without the recurrence of these inexplicable cries. Nothing, it was said, had ever been seen, at least nothing that could be identified. Some people, bolder or more imaginative than the others, had seen the darkness moving, Mrs. Jarvis said, with unconscious poetry. It began when night fell, and continued at intervals till day broke. Very often it was only an inarticulate cry and moaning, but sometimes the words which had taken possession of my poor boy's fancy had been distinctly audible. Oh, mother, let me in. The Jarvises were not aware that there had ever been any investigation into it. The estate of Brentwood had lapsed into the hands of a distant branch of the family, who had lived but little there, and of the many people who had taken it, as I had done, few had remained through two Decembers, and nobody had taken the trouble to make a very close examination into the facts. No, no, Jarvis said, shaking his head. No, no, Colonel. Wha would set themselves up for a laughing stock to all the countryside, making a wark about a ghost? Naebody believes in ghosts. It bid to be the wind in the trees, the last gentleman said, or some effect of the water rasslin among the rocks. He said it was a quite easy explained, but he gave up the hoose. And when you came, Colonel, we were awful anxious you should never hear. What for should I have spoiled the bargain and hammered the property for nothing? Do you call my child's life nothing? I said in the trouble of the moment, unable to restrain myself. And instead of telling this all to me, you have told it to him, to a delicate boy a child unable to sift evidence or judge for himself, a tender-hearted young creature. I was walking about the room with an anger all the hotter that I felt it to be most likely quite unjust. My heart was full of bitterness against the stolid retainers of a family 
who were content to risk other people's children and comfort, rather than let a house lie empty. If I had been warned, I might have taken precautions, or left the place, or sent Roland away, a hundred things which now I could not do. And here I was with my boy in a brain fever, and his life, the most precious life on earth, hanging in the balance, dependent on whether or not I could get to the reason of a commonplace ghost story. Colonel, said Jarvis solemnly, and she'll bear me witness, the young gentleman never heard a word from me. No, nor from either groom nor gardener. I'll gie ye my word for that. In the first place, is no a lad that invites ye to talk. There are some that are and that arena. Some will draw ye on till ye've tilt them a clatter of the town and I ye ken and whiles mare. But Maister Roland, his mind's full of his books. His eye civil and kind and a fine lad, but no that sort. And ye see, it's for our interest, Colonel that ye should stay at Brentwood. I took it upon me myself to pass the word. No a syllable to Maister Roland, nor to the young laddies. No a syllable. The woman servants that have little reason to be out at night kin little or nothing about it. And some think it grand to have a ghost so long as they're no in the way of coming across it. If you would have been telt the story to begin with, maybe ye would have thought so yourself. This was true enough. I should not have been above the idea of a ghost myself. Oh, yes, I claim no exemption. The girls would have been delighted. I could fancy their eagerness, their interest, and excitement. No, if we had been told, it would have done no good. We should have made the bargain all the more eagerly the fools that we are. Come with me, Jarvis, I said hastily, and we'll make an attempt to at least investigate. Say nothing to the men or to anybody. Be ready for me about ten o'clock. Me, Colonel, Jarvis said in a faint voice. I had not been looking at him in my own preoccupation, but when I did so, I found that the greatest change had come over the fat and ruddy coachman. Me, Colonel, he repeated, wiping the perspiration from his brow. There's nothing I wouldn't do to pleasure ye, Colonel, but if you'll reflect that I am no use to my feet. With a horse atween my legs, with reins in my hand, and maybe nay worse than other men. But on fit, Colonel, it's no the boggles. But I've been cavalry, you see, with a hoarse little laugh, all my life, to face a thing you didn't understand on your feet, Colonel. He believes in it, Colonel, and you didn't believe in it, the woman said. Will you come with me, I said, turning to her. She jumped back, upsetting her chair in the bewilderment. 
me with a scream and then fell into a sort of hysterical laugh. I wouldn't a say but what I would go. But what would the folks say to hear of Colonel Mortimer with an old silly woman at his heels? The suggestion made me laugh, too, though I had little inclination for it. I'm sorry you have so little spirit, Jarvis, I said. I must find someone else, I suppose. Jarvis, touched by this, began to remonstrate, but I cut him short. My butler was a soldier who had been with me in India, and was not supposed to fear anything, man or devil. Certainly not the former, and I felt that I was losing time. The Jarvises were too thankful to get rid of me. They attended me to the door with the most anxious courtesies. Outside, the two grooms stood close by, a little confused by my sudden exit. I don't know if perhaps they had been listening, at least standing as near as possible, to catch any scrap of the conversation. I waved my hand to them as I went past, in answer to their salutations, and it was very apparent to me that they also were glad to see me go. And it will be thought very strange but it would be weak not to add that I myself, though bent on the investigation I have spoken of, pledged to Roland to carry it out, and feeling that my boy's health, perhaps his life, depended on the result of my inquiry, I felt the most unaccountable reluctance, now that it was dark, to pass the ruins on my way home. My curiosity was intense, and yet it was all my mind could do to pull my body along. I dare say the scientific people would describe it the other way and attribute my cowardice to the state of my stomach. I went on, but if I had followed my impulse, I should have turned and bolted. Everything in me seemed to cry out against it. My heart thumped, my pulses all began like sledgehammers, beating against my ears and every sensitive part. It was very dark, as I have said. The old house, with its shapeless tower, loomed a heavy mass through the darkness, which was only not entirely so solid as itself. On the other hand, the great dark cedars of which we were so proud seemed to fill up the night. My foot strayed out of the path in my confusion and the gloom together, and I brought myself up with a cry as I felt myself knocked against something solid. What was it? The contact with hard stone and lime and prickly bramble bushes restored me a little to myself. Oh, it's only the old gable, I said aloud, with a little laugh to reassure myself. The rough feeling of the stones reconciled me. As I groped about thus, I shook off my visionary folly. What so easily explained is that I should have strayed from the path in the darkness. This brought me back to common existence, 
as if I had been shaken by a wise hand out of all the silliness of superstition. How silly it was, after all. What did it matter which path I took? I laughed again, this time with better heart, when suddenly, in a moment, the blood was chilled in my veins, a shiver stole along my spine, my faculties seemed to forsake me. Close by me, at my side, at my feet, there was a sigh. No, not a groan, not a moaning, not anything so tangible, a perfectly soft, faint, inarticulate sigh. I sprang back, and my heart stopped beating. Mistaken. No, mistake was impossible. I heard it as clearly as I hear myself speak. A long, soft, weary sigh, as if drawn to the utmost and emptying out a load of sadness that filled the breast. To hear this in the solitude, in the dark, in the night, though it was still early, had an effect which I cannot describe. I feel it now, something cold creeping over me into my hair and down to my feet, which refused to move. I cried out with a trembling voice, Who is there? as I had done before, but there was no reply. End of Section 7 The Open Door, Part 2